Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your attributes, for your power, your majesty. We thank you for the fact that you are eternal. You have always been and you always will be. You are immutable. You never change. You are omniscient. You know everything. You are omnipotent. You have the power to do everything. You are omnipotent. You are creator of all. Father, you, you are omnibus. You provide everything that we have. We worship you and we glorify you. We thank you for your faithfulness and your truth and your love and your peace and your joy and your justice and your mercy and your grace. Father, we thank you for the many blessings that you've given to us in the last year and in the years before. We thank you for the healing that you've provided for people in our body. We pray especially for Kathy Rapp this morning as she's, she continues to recover from surgery. We ask that you would help her to recover fully and quickly and that you would get the glory for it. Father, we also ask you that you be with Pastor Stewart and his family as they're in South Carolina. We pray that you would be with them and bless their time back there visiting with family and friends. And, and uh, we just ask that it would be a time of renewal and refreshment and, and that they would get to a point where they're looking forward to coming back here to Sealy to minister to us again. Father, I thank you for the work that you have done in this congregation over the last year. <clears throat> I thank you for the work that you're doing in my life. And I pray that as I preach this morning that you would keep me from saying anything you don't want me to say and that my words would be your words and, and that they would be accurate as based on, on the truth of your holy word, the Bible. Father, we pray that you would be glorified this morning and in this upcoming year. Amen. I want to pose to you this morning a question. A question that I hope prompts you to think a little bit and ponder what the answer might be. The question is, what is the greatest threat to the church today? What is the greatest threat to the Christian church in, in 2012? Wherein lies the greatest danger is it the world's animosity? Is it the declining number of young people remaining in the faith? Is it increased religious persecution or uh, perhaps a coming censorship of being able to preach or read aloud passages like Romans 1 that speak clearly against homosexuality? Uh, is it apathy? What is the greatest threat to the church today? Hold that thought, we'll come back to it, and open your Bibles to the book of Jude. Second to the last book of the Bible. If you find Revelation, turn to the book right before it, and don't turn very far, because Jude is a short book, sometimes called a postcard. And don't think that I've forgotten to give you the chapter. Jude is only one chapter. It's one of the few books of the Bible that just have one chapter. We're going to look at Jude verses 1 through 4, and let's start by reading the text. Jude, verses 1 through 4. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. 
For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Before we get into the text, let me give you a little background on this book. It's, it's not a book that I've been very familiar with, and as I thought and prayed about what to preach on, I kind of wanted to preach through a book of the Bible, and, and given the fact that I don't preach very frequently, and I usually like to finish what I start, I thought it would be a good idea to find a short book of the Bible to preach through. <laughs> There's, uh, there's some books I really like, and I'd love to preach through them, but if I started on them, I may never finish in my lifetime. So, um, I also do that the basic gist of Jude is somewhat apologetic, which means uh, that it has to do with defending our faith. I like apologetics, so my plan is for this to be a, the first of a series of three or maybe four or five sermons on the book of Jude, and who knows when I may get done. The context of Jude. Who wrote Jude? We're given the author, as with many of the New Testament books, in the very first verse, Jude. And he calls himself a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. So, who is this Jude? The name Jude is very similar to Judas, and it's, it's a derivative of the Hebrew name Judah, which was very popular. And in the New Testament, there are eight Judes or Judases mentioned. But there's only one associated with a man named James. There is the Apostle... I'm sorry, there's two that are associated with a man named James. There is the Apostle Jude, who's the son of James. We see that in Luke 6.16 and Acts 1.13. But not the brother of James. And then there is Jude, who is the half-brother of Jesus. He's the half-brother because Jude would be the son of Joseph and Mary. And Jesus, of course was not the biological son of Joseph because God was Jesus' biological father. So they're half-brothers. So it is well agreed among sound Bible scholars that the author of Jude was the brother of Jesus Christ and the full brother of James, the same James who wrote the book of James and who was also a half-brother of Jesus. The book of Jude is similar to 2 Peter. In fact, it's similar enough that John MacArthur combines them into one book in his New Testament commentary series, which I really like and and used in my studying of Jude. And just to show you a little bit how similar they are, listen to this from 2 Peter 2, starting in verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies even denying the master who, brought, who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. In Second Peter, and in, this, in the verses I just read there from Second Peter, Peter warns of the future coming of false teachers. And in Jude, we see Jude talking about the false teachers as already being there. So he's talking about them in a present tense, and from that we assume that Jude was written after Second Peter. Also, Jude gives several illustrations of God's judgment on the ungodly, but he doesn't include the destruction of, the, of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Thus, 
Jude was probably written after the death of Peter in the late 60s AD and before the fall of Jerusalem. Here's a brief outline. When I say here, I'm looking for the slide. Good. Here's a brief outline of the book of Jude. We've got verses 1 and 2, which are the salutation, that are the opening. Verses 3 and 4, we have the danger of apostates, and an apostate is somebody who's left the faith. It's a false teacher or a false prophet. Verses 5 through 7, we have the doom of apostates. Verses 8 through 16, the description of apostates. Verses 17 to 23, the defense against apostates. And then in what is probably the most famous verses in Jude, verses 23 and 24, the concluding doxology. I've already said that Jude was the brother of both James and Jesus Christ. But look how he introduces himself. It says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. He introduces himself as the servant or the New American Standard calls him a, the, he calls himself the bondservant of Jesus Christ. And he indicates by this introduction that the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ had transformed his heart. He went from being an unbeliever. John 7, 5, speaking of Jesus, says, For not even his brothers believed in him. So Jude went from being an unbeliever to being one who trusted Christ as his Lord and Master. And here he humbly refers to himself as Jesus' servant, rather than the fact which we might consider more impressive of being his brother. His saving relationship with Jesus became more important than his family tie. And this designation of bondservant that's used in the New American Standard is significant in the New Testament. It denotes being owned and rendering absolute selfless submission to someone. It is like being a slave. So Jude writes to Christians for the purpose of appealing to us to contend for the faith. Contending for the faith. Now, that makes us feel uncomfortable. And I want you to know why. It makes us feel uncomfortable because we live in a culture that values tolerance above all else. In fact, some would argue that tolerance is the only virtue remaining in our culture that we agree upon en masse. And when I say tolerance, don't be confused. I'm not talking about the kind of tolerance that led Voltaire to, to write, I may disagree with what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. That's the old tolerance. The old tolerance meant that I respect your right to be wrong. The old tolerance meant that I don't like what you say, I don't like what you do, but I respect you as a human being and we can engage in debates without ad hominem attacks. We can, we can discuss the issue and debate the issue without attacking each other personally. That is not the kind of tolerance that our culture values. Our culture values a new kind of tolerance, the kind of tolerance that led Frederick Hill, superintendent of a very large school district in the United States of America, to say, it is the mission of public schools not to tolerate intolerance. And it is the kind of tolerance that led Leslie Armour, professor of philosophy at the University of Ottawa, to say, our idea is that to be a virtuous citizen is to be one who tolerates everything except intolerance. Here's my question to Frederick and Leslie, and I kind of think they went to the same school. 
What do you call this act of not tolerating intolerance? Could it be intolerance? The New Tolerance says, No, you cannot disagree. You must embrace the beliefs of others. You must embrace the lifestyles of others. You must embrace the practices of others. You must celebrate them. And if you do not, you are intolerant. Now, that doesn't work. But even though it doesn't work, it rules the day. And so this idea of contending for the faith is completely untenable. We don't understand that. It does not compute. That is intolerant. And in our culture, the only thing that we absolutely, positively refuse to tolerate is intolerance. But I agree with G.K. Chesterton, who wrote, Tolerance is the virtue of a man without conviction. Tolerance is the virtue of a man without conviction. I am not tolerant, not in the new sense of the word, because I serve a God who is not tolerant. He's just not. Have you read the Ten Commandments lately? This is a paraphrase, but it works for me. I'm God all by myself, and you don't get another one. I won't tolerate it. If you say, well, I don't really like the Ten Commandments, I don't really like the law, let me ask you, uh, how tolerant was God of Sodom and Gomorrah? Or of everybody in the whole world except Noah and his family in the flood? Well, that's, uh, that's just the Old Testament, right? Okay, how about Ananias and Sapphira? They're in the New Testament. They told a lie, and God struck them dead. No, God is not tolerant. So in this midst of a culture that won't tolerate intolerance, we are called upon to contend for the faith. Now, let me be clear. I am not saying that we are to be contentious, and I will be the first to say that I struggle with that. Those of you who know me well know that I sometimes struggle with not being contentious. I like to argue and I like to debate and sometimes I pick a fight for little to no reason at all. I struggle with not being contentious. We are not called to be contentious. We are, however, called to contend. And let's pause here a moment and consider this word contend. What does it mean to contend? We use this word in sports. Sometimes we hear about Contenders and pretenders. The pretenders want to look like contenders, but they don't really have what it takes. They pretend to contend, but at the end of the day or the end of the season, they just aren't there. I like football. We've got some football games on today that are going to decide which teams will contend for the prize, for the playoffs, for the championship, and which teams will not. And even in football, I think we can see the difference between contending and being contentious. Okay, contending is the guy who strives and struggles within the rules of the game to engage the opposition and to beat the opposition. He's the guy who sacks the quarterback with a hard but legal hit and then offers his hand to the quarterback to help him up. Then he goes back to the line of scrimmage to do it all over again. That is contending. Contentious is a little bit different. The guy who's contentious is the guy who sacks the quarterback with a hit and then he stands over him, aggressively trash-talking in his face. Okay? You've probably all seen that if you watch sports, and you see it in various sports. That's the difference between being contentious and contending. So I want to look at Jude's command to us to contend for the faith. There's three principles that we're going to take a look at. Principle number one. 
Contending for the faith is the responsibility of every believer. Contending for the faith is the responsibility of every, of every believer. Look at what Jude says here. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to, to whom? To whom is he writing? Let's see. To those who are called. I'm claiming that one. To those who are called. Anyone else want to jump on that bandwagon with me? Okay, let's look at number two. Beloved in God the Father. I'm putting my hand up on that one too. I'm claiming that. And I'm out of hands, but there's one more there. And kept for Jesus Christ. I'm in that one too. Okay, Jude is using a teaching tool here by referring to one group of individuals three times in three different terms. This is for all believers. The called, the beloved in God the Father, and those kept for Jesus Christ. This means every last one of us who is a genuine believer. All of us have been called upon to contend earnestly for the faith, to agonize greatly, he says. It is for all of us, and I know sometimes we try to sideswipe certain things like this. We want to say, no, 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 that's just for those trained in apologetics or for those trained in seminary or trained in philosophy. That's not for me. My job is just to love on people and to live my life in such a way that they will say, I've been watching the way you shovel your walk. And there is something different and magnificent in the way that you pile your snow. What must I do to be saved? Don't we do that? We do that with the Great Commission. Great Commission, go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations, referring to every people group, Pontotha ethne. Well, that was for the original hearers. Really? Well, okay. Maybe not just for the original hearers, but that's for people who are called to missions, and I haven't been called to missions, so... Really? You like that one better? Well, it, it wasn't for me. Oh, really? Because if you keep reading, he says in that same passage, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Listen, if you don't get, go ye therefore, you don't get, lo, I am with you. In order to get, lo, I am with you, you've got to get, you have to accept, go ye therefore. And I don't know about you, but I want some, lo, I am with you. Which means I get, go ye therefore. It is the responsibility of every believer to contend for the faith. This is for all of us. Every last one of us is called to plant our feet, to square our shoulders, to hold our heads high, to give an account, to make a defense to anyone who would ask us for a reason for the hope that is in us, and to do so with gentleness and respect. Contending for the faith is the responsibility of every believer. That includes me, and that includes you, that includes adults, that includes young adults, and that includes children. Principle number two. Contending for the faith is a primary, not a secondary issue. Contending for the faith is a primary, not a secondary issue. Look at verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. Now hold on here for a second. Salvation is a primary issue, right? Of course. It doesn't get any more primary than salvation. He says, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. You don't preempt 
and eagerness of effort to write about a primary issue unless the issue that you're writing about is of a more urgent importance, which makes it a primary issue. Jude appeals to his readers that they apagonizome for the faith. No, that's not Russian. That's Greek. And I'm probably not saying it right either. Apagonizome is where we get our word agonize. He appeals that they agonize greatly for the faith. Apagonizome stresses the need to defend the truth continually and vigorously. And again, back to the football analogy, those linemen and those linebackers who are trying to get to the quarterback are agonizing greatly. They're sweating. They're breathing hard. They're concentrating. They're struggling with all their might. They are contending earnestly. And to give you another picture or analogy of contending, yesterday afternoon, Caleb and I went out snowmobiling for several hours. and We went up into the North Fork area. And uh, we're, we're about ready to head back and Caleb's shock on his snowmobile somehow compressed. All he, he tells me he didn't hit anything or didn't take a big jump. I didn't see everything he did, so I'm not totally sure about that. Actually, we had it happen in a couple. For some strange reason, it's the third time this year we've had it happen. But the shock compressed all the way. So it's stuck all the way down. His sled's leaning to the right. And as he climbs a hill, it's always trying to pull him that way. It's throwing him off balance. We, had, we were probably a half mile from the trail. So we started back to the trail. And as he's going down the hill, again, it's pulling him to the right. And we get to the trail and ride it for a little bit. And we stop and look at it and try to yank it back out. It didn't move. And I said, well, what do you think? Can you ride it? And he said, I don't know. I'm already kind of already sore from trying to manhandle this thing. And I said, well, I don't know what we can do about it. So he said, well, let's go. We took off. We kept going. And we went to the warming hut. And got to the warming hut, and we got a piece of firewood from the warming hut, hut and turned the sled on its side and tried to beat on it, and the thing wouldn't budge. I don't know, it took more force than we could get to straighten the thing out. So he's got to ride it all the way home. He's already tired, and as you go down the trail with no shock, every bump you hit is a jar, it's a blow, and I rode behind him for a while, and he stands on one side trying to keep some of the weight off that other the, the side that has no shock on it and it's tiring him out it's wearing him down he can't ride the way he wants to ride to me that was another picture of this word contending where he's fighting with something it's it's tiring him and uh we got home and actually it was out on the lake we stopped for a minute and he said boy dad i never really appreciated shock so much till i didn't have one anymore <laughs> anyway contending for the faith is a it's a struggle and this is a primary not a secondary issue This is of utmost importance. You'll see better why in a moment. But for now, let's look at the third principle. Okay, number one, contending for the faith is the responsibility of every believer. Number two, contending for the faith is a primary, not a secondary issue. And number three, contending for the faith requires familiarity with God's revealed truth. Contending for the faith requires familiarity with God's revealed truth. Again, look at what he says here. To contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the theologians. No. To contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the priesthood. That was once for all delivered to the clergy. That was once for all delivered to the pastor and elders. No. It says, 
to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. I love that. It was delivered to the saints, to all of us. And by the way, we're not called to contend for the way that we were raised. God bless your parents, but they are fallible. God bless your Sunday school teachers, but they are fallible. We are called upon to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. That's you, and that's me. It is the responsibility of every believer, and if we are going to conduct ourselves accordingly, we must be familiar with God's revealed truth. We must know God's word. And part of the problem that we have in our day is that people are contending for things other than that which was delivered to the saints. People are contending for their own theological preferences. For example, we contend for contemporary versus traditional styles of music. We contend for the color of our carpet. We contend for, dare I say it, paper versus glassware plates. But we won't contend for the faith. We contend for our preferences, but we won't contend for that which serves as the foundation upon which everything that we are is built. Why is this so important? If we don't contend, here's what will happen. Look there in the next verse, verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Why is this so important? I'm glad you asked. It's so important because there are individuals who call themselves Christians, but are not. It's so important because there are individuals who say that they represent us, but they do not. This is so important because there are those who have crept in unnoticed who are redefining what Christianity is all about and undermining our witness in the culture. For example, John Shelby Spong. Okay, Spong served as a bishop in the Episcopal Church. He was a pastor for some three decades. He's a best-selling author and a lecturer at Harvard Divinity School. Now listen to what he writes in his book, A New Christianity for a New World. I do not believe that Jesus entered this world by the miracle of a virgin birth. Or that virgin births occur anywhere except in mythology. I do not believe that he was born in Bethlehem or that he fled to Egypt. I do not believe that a literal star guided literal wise men to bring him gifts at his birth. I do not believe that the events that Christians celebrate at Easter were the literal resurrection of the three days dead body of Jesus. He does not believe any of the essentials of the historic Christian faith, but not only does he call himself a Christian, he is often called upon by individuals like Larry King to represent Christianity. When the late Peter Jennings had a primetime special on called The Search for the Historical Jesus, if you look at the names of those he had on, there's something disturbingly familiar about almost all of them. Most of them had some alignment or some allegiance to the Jesus Seminar. And they were referred to as experts and New Testament scholars. I don't know if you remember the Jesus Seminar. The Jesus Seminar was a study that was done by a group of so-called New Testament scholars that gathered around a table with beads in their hands and a basket on the table, and they examined the sayings of Jesus in the New Testament, and as they went through them, they'd look, at a, they'd look at something that Jesus, according to the New Testament, something that Jesus said, and they'd pull out a bead, 
And if they thought that that was something that Jesus definitely did say, they put in one colored bead in the basket. If they thought it was something that Jesus maybe said, but maybe didn't say, they put in another color of bead into the basket. And if they thought it was something that Jesus definitely did not say, they put in a third color of bead into the basket. Remember what Satan asked Eve in the garden in Genesis 3? Satan asked Eve, did God really say? Guess what these scholars are asking? Did Jesus really say? It's the same question. These scholars elevate themselves above God's revealed written word in making their own determination of what the Son of God said. Certain people have crept in unnoticed. People like, and I might step on some of your toes here, Joel Osteen. Joel Osteen claims that Mormons are Christians. He said that they might have a little bit different version of Christianity, but they claim Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior, so they must be Christians. However, Mormons deny that Jesus is one with God the Father. They call him little G God, but not big G God. And with Mormons and and with many others, we need to carefully define our terms. Mormons believe that there are many gods, but the Bible clearly teaches that there is only one. Mormons are not Christians. Joel Osteen says that he doesn't know if Muslims will go to heaven or not. He said that in a Larry King interview. But Muslims deny the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians that if Jesus did not physically rise from the dead, our faith is useless and futile. And let me tell you, a useless and futile faith doesn't get us to heaven. Jesus himself said that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And you cannot deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ and be a Christian. Muslims also believe that you have to earn your salvation. And the Bible says that salvation is by grace alone. Muslims will not go to heaven. And Joel Osteen has some good things to say. But he's peddling a dangerous version of religious relativism and prosperity theology that is misleading many. And when I say many, he's got over a million fans on Facebook and he's got about 10 million viewers worldwide of his, uh, I guess, of his Sunday morning service. Certain people have crept in unnoticed. People like Rob Bell, pastor and author called by Time Magazine, a singular rock star in the church world. Rob Bell wrote, Love Wins, a book about heaven, hell, and the fate of every person who ever lived, in which he claims that hell is empty. Certain people have crept in unnoticed. How about Brian McLaurin, another megachurch pastor and the leading spokesman of the emergent church movement? He said, we need to have a five-year moratorium on making any judgments regarding homosexuality. And then at the end of five years, if we haven't come to agreement, well, we should have another five-year moratorium. Huh? Scripture's already made the judgment on homosexuality. It calls it sin. Certain people have crept in unnoticed, and I could go on and on. We have a number of Christian channels on our satellite service, and we will not watch without a high level of diligence in determining what is actually taught. There is a lot of bad teaching out there. There's a lot of good teaching too, but unfortunately, mixed in with the good teaching is often bad teaching. Certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, and they do two things. They pervert the grace of God into sensuality, 
or in the New American Standard, they turn grace into licentiousness or lawlessness, and they deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. False teachers creeping in is not a new thing. Jesus warned about the deadly dangers of apostasy in Matthew 7, which Justin read a little while ago. False prophets who come in sheep's clothing but are ravenous wolves. Paul warned about false teachers when writing to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, where he said after his departure, savage wolves would come in. And from your own selves, men would arise speaking perverse things and drawing away the flock. In scores of other passages in the New Testament, false teaching masquerading as Christian truth is warned against. And in the book of Revelation, only two of the seven churches that John addresses remained completely faithful. The other five, to one degree or another, had fallen prey to infiltrating doctrinal error and its moral consequences. Today, false teachers continue to creep in unnoticed, infiltrating the fabric of the church and orchestrating as much harm as possible. As a result, genuine fellowship, worship, ministry, and evangelism fade away as the church succumbs to devastating errors in both doctrine and practice. Today we have false teachers writing books, editing publications, speaking on radio and TV, teaching in colleges and seminaries, preaching from pulpits, blogging on the internet, and creating websites. So, what do we do? How do we counter the false teaching and how do we contend for the faith? The remedy is we need to know what we believe and why we believe it. We need to know what we believe and why we believe it. Look, when when money handlers are getting trained to spot counterfeit bills, they spend weeks dealing with nothing but real money for hours and hours. So much so that when their trainers finally slip in a counterfeit, the handlers recognize the real money instantly. That is what we need. We need to be so familiar with God's Word, with doctrine and theology, that we can instantly recognize and reject false teaching. And it is not just the job of the pastor and the elders to contend for the faith. It's the job of all believers. It is the job of the pastor and elders to help equip you to contend for the faith. And contending for that faith requires a familiarity with God's revealed truth. God's word is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That is contending 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. We are to correct our opponents with gentleness, as in 2 Timothy 2, 22 to 26. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Okay, that's what's been delivered. Along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, that would be the saints. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant <clears throat> controversies. That's contending for the wrong things. You know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. We must not be contentious, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Again, contending. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. In order to correct our opponents, we need to know the truth. We need to be in God's Word daily, studying it, meditating on it, memorizing it, discussing it with each other so that iron can sharpen iron. Those football players out there today have spent literally 
hours and days and even months in preparation for contending. They've studied film, they've lifted weights, they've memorized plays, they've practiced running those plays, they've done drills, they've spent time with their coaches, they have trained their bodies and their minds to be sharp for the battle. It's the same for us. We need to be in God's Word daily, studying it, meditating on it, memorizing it, discussing it with each other. Parents, you need to be teaching your children the truths of God's Word. Not just as nice little stories that sound like fairy tales, but as factual history and authoritative truth. Parents, contend for the faith of your children. Young adults, you need to be in God's Word so that you can avoid the deceptions of the culture around us, in school and in the media. Contend for the faith to your friends and your teachers and family. And children, you need to be learning the truths of God's Word, that they may sanctify you, that you may grow up in wisdom to serve the Lord with your whole hearts and whole lives. Contend for the faith in this new year. Make it a priority to study God's Word. Let me give you a couple of practical ways you may have to contend for the faith. And this one is often found in college and, and even uh, Christian colleges. Pastor Stewart encountered some of this when he was going to school. Teaching that's contrary to our faith. Uh, the, the teaching that there is no absolute truth or absolute morality. Will you be ready to respond? In 2002, according to a Barna research poll, 83% of teenagers said that moral truth depends on the circumstances. 83%. Only 6% of teenagers said that moral truth is absolute. And even in conservative Christian churches among which we would fall, only 32% of those polled of any age said that they believe in absolute truth. You may encounter atheists in your workplace. Are you ready to contend with those who do not even believe that God exists? And let me note here, it's not our job to convince anyone that our beliefs are true or to convict anyone of their sin. That's the job of the Holy Spirit. Our job is to simply share the truths of God's word and let the Holy Spirit take it from there. 1 Peter 3.15 But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Being prepared means that you have studied beforehand. And making a defense is contending for the faith. Doing it with gentleness and respect is making sure you are not being contentious. The question I asked at the beginning was, what is the greatest threat to the church today? The greatest threat to the church today is the same as it has always been. The greatest threat to the church is false teaching. Listen to this quote from John MacArthur. The subtlety and severity of false teaching make it a spiritual poison unlike any other. While external threats such as religious persecution and the world's animosity are certainly unpleasant, the wounds they inflict are only physical and the injuries they cause only temporary. The deadliest false teaching, on the other hand, comes not from deceptive non-Christian religions outside the church, but from spiritual pretenders inside the church. And the resulting damage is far greater than that caused by any external assault. The casualties are spiritual and the consequences are eternal. It's no wonder, then, that Jesus warned his followers about the deadly dangers of apostasy. End quote. Sound doctrine is under siege as it has always been. From the Garden of Eden when 
Satan twisted God's word and convinced Eve to disobey God. And Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11.3, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Contending for the faith is the responsibility of every believer. Contending for the faith is a primary, not a secondary issue. And contending for the faith requires a familiarity with God's revealed truth. The reason that it is so important is that there are those who have crept in unnoticed, who call themselves Christian, and all the while are undermining and denying the very core of the Christian faith. And if we do not contend, they get to represent us unhindered. I could have spoke to you today about the great opportunity of a new start in a new year, but I felt compelled to urge you, to admonish you, to appeal to you, to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all handed down to you and to me with every fiber of your being, with every breath in your body, with every moment that God grants you. Stand for, contend for, represent and proclaim the authentic, unadulterated gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and let the chips fall where they may because there are some things worse than being called intolerant in this culture in which we live. Let's pray.